I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll take live and emailed questions from our audience from the Centers for International Business Education. Has the trade war from China spilled over into non-tariff barriers? What's next for USMCA? And are the Trump administration's new agreements really all that new? All that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Okay, so our first question is from Deborah Glassman from the University of Washington. And Deborah asked, to what extent has the tit-for-tat tariff war with China spilled over into no-tariff retaliation? So I think she's asking about non-tariff barriers. So, for example, have U.S. firms experienced slower Chinese government approvals or regulatory crackdowns? Is China likely to slow walk recertification of the Boeing 737 MAX? So is this just a tariff fight or is China done, you know, behind the border, sneakier measures? I hear it's definitely spilled over. There's growing anecdotal evidence from companies that they are experiencing uh, longer than normal delays in getting approvals, an increased number of, uh, of inspections. One actually CEO indicated to us that he'd had, I think, 457 additional inspections uh, recently. So yes, there's definitely a spillover effect. I don't know if there's data on it, Scott. What it, I've heard the same kind of anecdotal information, but it happens a lot in agriculture, particularly fresh produce or fresh fruits and vegetables, that it just something gets delayed and the, the, the container sits in port too long and the product spoils. But also there is the opportunity for sort of discriminatory inspections uh, that technically qualified as 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 a, a reasonable protection of health, of uh, of human health are done in such a way that there's a lot more scrutiny to American imports than there are to other imports this is this happens a lot in in agriculture trade worldwide I'm certain it's happening in China foreign invested enterprises US invested enterprises in China uh, China has never been shy about using its regulatory apparatus to speed up or slow down, depending on how they feel about you at every moment in time. And given that the Chinese government has stated its plan to identify sort of good good guys and bad guys in the corporate world, uh, I forgot the exact title of that. But uh, but this is something that we should have expected. Uh, most, most businesses in China both expect it and deal with it. Uh, I don't anticipate it slowing down. It's not all negative, to be fair about it. Last week, I recall PayPal got uh, Chinese uh, yes. approval to operate there, having tried for a number of years along with credit, major credit card companies. Uh, and I, th- I think this, is, this was an interesting case uh, because well, we actually won a WTO case on this back, I think, in 2011, something, something like that. And even though we won, uh, the Chinese have been resisting compliance. This is the first big company to get this kind of approval. Uh, I suspect that they did it partly because they were under some WTO pressure to do it, partly because they're telling the rest of the world they're the good good guys on adhering to the rules, and this would be one that would be a bad example if they don't. But also, I think it's because from uh, for PayPal, it's too late. You know, there's, right. there's, there's Union Pay, there's LA Pay. There's local competition. The, the, Chinese, the Chinese have already got the market. Uh, PayPal will get, you know, 3%. Now the you know the the footnote there is three percent of China is a lot of money, 
So it may sound the percent may sound small, but it, it could, could be it could add up to real. real it could be a very profitable enterprise business. for them, even though I'm I would be surprised if they get beyond a, a niche part of the market. And I think the Chinese approved it, knowing that that's what was going to happen. It, it was not a threat to the established uh, companies. Yeah, the thing is, so the, the the short answer is yes, these things happen. They happen with with China, but China's not the only one that has dealt in these kinds of practices over the years. My name is Mark Ballum. I'm with San Diego State University. Mm. Uh, oh, cool. And as you can imagine, being in San Diego, right on the border with Mexico, we're very interested in seeing the USMCA pass. Sure. Uh, so the question I had for you was, you mentioned that uh, Ambassador Lighthouser and Committee Chairman Neal are, are negotiating some aspects of the agreement. And, and I'm wondering how that can happen. The agreement's already been ratified by Mexico. So what could we possibly be renegotiating at this point? Well, there's a lot. Well, I was going to say, what couldn't we be renegotiating? <laughs> First of all, we actually, if you go to our website, the, the CSIS.org website, and go to the Shoal Chair, we just issued a paper that looked at every trade agreement we've negotiated since the original NAFTA to study uh, how many of them went back for renegotiation and how many of them were, re were reopened. And what we concluded was, I think, that there were um, – uh, most of them had uh, side letters or uh, sort of amendments that were attached. And I think three of them went back and were actually reopened and renegotiated. So it's not unusual or unheard of to do that. I think, the, you know, Ambassador Lighthizer doesn't want to do that. And there may be solutions short of doing that. I mean, if you think about it, look at it this way. One of the issues where the Democrats have complained is inadequate enforcement, which is an issue that, that people, you know, a lot of people sympathize with. It's one thing to negotiate an agreement, and if you don't pay any attention to it and nobody implements any of the provisions, you really haven't gotten anything. So enforcement is important. But if you think about it in the context of the U.S.-Mexico, enforcement really is, sort of has two parts. Part one is what are the Mexicans going to do and how do we make sure they're going to do what they're do, what they're going to they they do what they promised, and which relates to part two, which is what do we do uh, if they don't? Uh, that latter point is unilateral. You know the question of what actions the United States can take under its own laws is something that we can address, and we can address it in the implementing legislation. What actions we want uh, the Mexicans to take. Uh, we can address that in the implementing legislation as, as well in terms of what we are going to ask them to do or, for example, setting up a process that would allow us to determine whether or not they are keeping their word. Congress, uh, Senator Wyden and Senator uh, Sherrod Brown of Ohio proposed a, uh, a, a solution to this that involves inspections that American parties could go down to Mexican factories and, and look to see if the various Mexican commitments were being kept. Uh, and they indicated that they were willing to make it reciprocal, that the Mexicans could come up here and do the same thing, which is a little bit uh, controversial. That can all be done within the context of a bill that that's, you know, sets up a process for doing that. The agreement is silent on that, so you don't violate the agreement if you add all these sort of extra bells and whistles. Uh, that's, I mean, that's an illustration. Of yeah, the sure. This do. is basically, think of this as a feature of negotiating with the United States. Good news, gigantic home market, highly contestable, richest consumers on the planet. 
the downside, the bad news is our politics are screwed up, okay? And so what you have is a USMCA negotiated by a Republican administration and, and where the objectives were agreed with the Republican Congress. All of a sudden, the agreement's completed and there's, there's a Democratic Congress in charge, Democratic House, okay? So the narrative goes like this, House Democrats, it's not good enough. Well, I'm sorry, it starts with the president. This is the most luxurious agreement in human history, okay? Then you have the House Democrats saying, no, not good enough. And then you have the trade representative saying, what's not good enough, which is how we got to our list of four topics. Now we're negotiating the four topics. At some point, the counteroffers are going to get accepted, at which point the, the House Democrats are saying, there, we fixed it for you. Now we'll move it. Okay, and so we're in the midst of that narrative. We're, that's the storyline that's playing out right now. And fortunately, well, I, I, think, I think the government of Mexico did a magnificent job of, of, of putting the right people in place. Jose Cia, uh, Jesus Ciade, their chief negotiator and, and uh, economic, economy minister under AMLO, is a true professional. He's, he was a deputy director general of the GATT. He's been in, in this business for a long time. They conducted this in a manner expecting this in the end game. And they've been awesomely responsive to, to questions. So they want to get to yes. Canada wants to get to yes. And they're going to let us have our games and play out our domestic narrative. And we hope it all resolves. Where, where it gets tricky is in cases where the Democrats really are more focused. What they really want to do is change U.S. law. Right. And here, Ambassador Lighthizer, I think, has a good argument. What the Trade Promotion Authority bill the Congress in, uh, passed in 2015 says is that our trade negotiators should attempt to the extent possible to, uh, you know, bring U.S. law into these agreements, that the goal is to produce agreements that reflect existing U.S. law. Well, there are some Democrats that don't like existing U.S. law. Uh, the most obvious case that's on the table is a question of data protection for biologic drugs, where U.S. law provides 12 years of protection. Uh, and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party thinks that's too long, uh, and they think uh, that uh, I actually think they probably would be zero. Is, zero, zero, zero is probably would the be number good. they really have in uh, mind. Five would be okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Lighthizer's response really is, you know, they got ten was what's in the agreement. Lighthizer's response was, well, the orders I got from you guys, meaning the Congress, was stick to U.S. law, and I did the best I could. And now you're coming back and saying we want you to change it. But what you're really telling me is you don't like U.S. law. and So go change it. So go change it. Or, or go work on that. Th yeah. There's actually a proposal <laughs> that would accommodate this issue, I think, rather neatly, which is not to say the left wing will buy it, but uh, which is to say that you know if any of the countries subsequently changes its law, then we could go back and change the agreement at that point. But we don't have to do it now. Question from Jade Sims uh, from Michigan State University where – I went. Go green, go white. Uh, Jade <laughs> wants to know, as a group of trade educators working with students and current leaders, what do you think is the positive message that we can share to businesses more involved in exporting despite the current negative environment? I can think of one. I think Scott probably has some more. I think if, if you're an exporter, well, you need to think about what that means. I think there's a lot of companies where the workers don't know they're exporters. And the, uh, the, the company can do a lot to help, help them understand that. One of the classic examples of this comes up if, if you are in Connecticut, or let's say you're in Michigan, since she asked the question, and you make electrical wire harnesses for Boeing. So basically, you're making wiring that goes into the airplane. Um, if you're a worker, you're thinking, my customer is Boeing. 
and this stuff's going to Seattle, and it's going to be incorporated into a plane, most of Boeing's planes are exported. So in effect, you are an exporter, but you don't think about it that way. You don't think that what you are making in your town in Michigan or Connecticut is contributing to, you know, the U.S. trade surplus. Well, the, we don't have a surplus, but is, you know, shrinking the U.S. trade deficit because it's going to somebody that's going to incorporate it into an export. Companies, I think, can do a lot to help their workers understand what their real place is in the global economy. And they're not just making something that's going to another U.S. company and never leaves the country. I agree with the, with that. There is a, there's a challenge in corporate communications, particularly in the days now that we have these complicated value chains and production and and uh, and trade in intermediate goods, it's really hard to know what gets exported and what doesn't. And unless the company uh, has is willing to share that information with its employees, there's no reason for employees to know that. However, I think there's a more basic problem, and it's one that that I draw on because before I became a trade guy, I was a consumer products marketing guy. And uh, what I learned in consumer products marketing is you always talk the benefit, right? And trade people, I love them. I, I enjoy working with them every day of my life, but they always start with a problem. Trade people always start with, this is wrong with the system. And so a, a listener who's not an expert and not involved in the debate in some cases will hear that this is just a bunch of problems. It's a bunch of people complaining to each other. So I always recommend that, that everybody who talks about international trade anywhere, everywhere, whatever the, whatever the question is, the first subject is, your life is better because of international trade and the world is a better place because of international trade. More people have been lifted out of poverty in the last decade than ever before in human history because of international trade. Your life is richer. You get more for your paycheck. You have a greater choice of, of, of what you eat and purchase and, and wear uh, and drive because of the international trading system. And, and that's a great thing. And most of us just really benefit every single day from that improvement in life. Now let's talk about the problems. And so for me, if I, if I were talking to a room full of educators, do what everybody who sells soap and peanut butter and, and, uh, and, and clothing does is benefit first, then, then issue. That uh, what Scott's uh, initial comment made me think of something else. When I teach this stuff and when I teach about global supply chains, uh, we use slides that illustrate the uh, complexity of a global value chain. One of them is a uh, vehicle rear suspension assembly for a Chevy Equinox that shows all the different factories that contributed, in, the, in this case, in the United States and Canada, I think nine different factories in the United States and in that many states, well, in seven different states, and four or five different factories all in Ontario that contributed to this uh, uh, rear suspension uh, assembly uh, process. One of the characteristics of that is that it went back and forth across the U.S.-Canada border five or six times as it moves from place to place to have things added to it. And one of the things that the students, I think, always have a problem grasping that, that uh, academics can help them with is, why is that cheaper than just shipping all the parts to Detroit and putting it together in one place? And which is the way Henry Ford invented the assembly line. You know, everything comes to Detroit and it, or wherever, and it sits there. And then when you, you know, when you're ready, you pull it out to the assembly line and attach it and move on. And you know, the revolution, revelation of global supply change is that it's actually cheaper, you know, to move subassemblies around and add to them 
in the places where you've got specialized uh, labor and and specialized know-how and yes. specialized know-how to do it, and then to bring them all back to one point for final assembly. People don't get inherently why that's more efficient. And one of the valuable things I think academia can do is to show how that works and why it works. Well, every transaction in international trade, like any kind of commerce, has to be mutually beneficial or the transaction doesn't happen. No one enters into a bargain, none of us do, enter into a bargain to purchase a good or service unless we feel like we, we, we benefited from that transaction. So the international trade occurs. Most simply, it wouldn't occur if there weren't a benefit. So always look for why is this is beneficial to both parties. Right. Well, you have to think about this long term. Yes. Uh, I think there are many transactions that have where in, in a, the case of one of the parties, uh, the short-term costs exceed the short-term benefit, but the party does it anyway because he foresees a long-term benefit. That does happen, yes. And uh, I'm going to sell my merchandise to... Uh, Walmart at a reduced cost because I'm confident that uh, six months from now, they'll be buying three times as much at regular cost. Correct. The reverse also happens occasionally, which is if you know I, I'm uh, ready to, ready for another pack of cigarettes. I know it's going to shorten my life, but, uh, but uh, time to buy it. So, so there are exceptions to almost any rule. But, but in general, commerce is commerce. The fact that the parties are, 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 are in the same country or a different country doesn't change the fact that transactions done uh, voluntarily generate mutual benefit. Great. We have another question. Yes. Hi. Uh, my name is Yong Sun Peck, uh, the director, cyber director of the Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. I think that one of the another important uh, bilateral agreement that we modified was the Coros FTA uh, last year. So um, since that uh, Trump became the president, and, uh, he successfully negotiated two. And uh, as Scott mentioned, that um, uh, we now negotiating with um, uh, Japan. It, it seems to me, I think that that uh, even though uh, you already said actually that it's uh, some people start to calling it's the FTA light because it is not as comprehensive as the all the other you know. Yes. Uh, FTAs that uh, we have signed. So it appears to me that I think that he's just uh, tried to strike that uh, as many bilateral agreement as possible before that uh, the uh, presidential election next year so that he can tell the people, you know, look what I have negotiated, all these that, uh, you know, the uh, bilateral trade agreements so that it could increase his chance to be reelected. And um, the reason I'm saying that is if you take a look at the content or substance of all these negotiations, there is not really substantial changes, the, both in the USMCA and, and also that um, uh, Coros FTA. And actually, that the LMU Cyber that we hosted at the, the conference on the uh, Coros FTA 2.0 uh, last spring. So I'd like to hear from you that actually that, that do you think that, that we actually that has substantial change in favor of the U.S. industry and companies? You are, you are quite right on the substance. Very little change, if any. No, no meaningful change. Uh, my own view is we're in a world where facts don't seem to matter all that much because all the all voters ever heard was the Korea free trade agreement was the second worst agreement since the earth cooled. The worst agreement since the earth cooled being the NAFTA. Okay, and once we made some basically cosmetic changes to the U.S. Korea FTA, it was luxurious and perfect and magnificent. 
Okay, so that's what we got. That's what we're dealing with here. But I would point out, note, the president will never say FTA or free trade agreement. He has no interest in free trade. Okay, that's why it's not the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was a, an agreement to liberalize markets among three equal partners in North America. The new agreement is the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Okay, the, the president is, is bored by free trade. Okay, he wants advantages for the United States. And so that's why the U.S.-Japan agreement is not called an FTA. Of course, it's nowhere close to it in terms of its, comp its scope or comprehensiveness. But what really is going on there, th think, about, think about the importance of names. Think about the importance of names in persuasion, place names, brand names, whatever it might be. Okay. Uh, it, it's the U.S.-Japan agreement. Okay. It's not a free trade agreement. So, so I, I agree with you. Substantively, there is almost no difference. And frankly, I think the Korean uh, negotiators, the Korean government, uh, did a really smart thing because they stopped trying to fix the substance. And they just, they agreed to what they're being asked to do and agreed to buy some more natural gas or something and and make the trade deficit shrink. And uh, and it, it all worked. And so, they, so the president hasn't bugged them since they signed. But you're, you're quite right on substance. It's just that's our world today. Hi, trade guys. Kevin Fandel, Temple University, and I love your podcast. Go Temple. Go Temple. My parents went to Temple. Oh, fantastic. Impressive win over Maryland, by Very the way. Very impressive win over Maryland. <laughs> that was try our best. Real... The Broad Street bullies yeah. come to yeah. town. Yeah. So I want to ask you about multilateralism. You're talking about all these trade agreements. We have, a, a, we have Trump. We have Democrats who are very protectionist. We have the WTO losing its authority in December for dispute settlement. Are we going back to the 1930s? Are we going towards a system of just bilateralism and, and power politics? What's going to happen with multilateralism? Actually, read my column next week, which is um, Wait a minute. You, you, he uh, can't read that. it yet. Yeah, he, you, he wants you to know answer now. the question now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all right. I, um, it's a great question, it, by the it, way. It, I, two things. I mean, first of all, I think speaking as one, the Democrats are more complicated than your question implies. If you look at poll data, they're actually uh, more pro-trade than Republicans. Um, they have a significant element of the party, organized labor, which is not. But overall, they are not only significantly pro-trade, but it's, in, it's increasing. And they've been consistently pro-trade. And if you break it down demographically, the reason is the most pro-globalization, pro-trade people in the country are young people and minorities. Uh, and that's the Democratic base. So one of the problems that Democratic candidates have is reconciling two factions in the party, one which is numerically larger but uh, doesn't vote <laughs> as, as, with, with the same enthusiasm as organized labor, and the other part, organized labor, which is, uh, is uh, back in the 30s in, in, in some respects. But highly effective as a campaign and, operation. Yes, provides and, uh, a lot of organizational right. and financial support. I mean, Scott's comment about this was that uh, – the UAW did an absolutely brilliant job of getting getting out the UAW vote in Michigan in 2016. Unfortunately, they all voted for Trump and not for Clinton, uh, which was uh, which was not the point. Yeah, right. But um, that has to be sorted out. I think there are to go to your question. One area where I think the Democrats will differ from Trump probably won't be an issue in the campaign, but I think they are all of them. Uh, 
uh, even Elizabeth Warren, which I'll get to in a minute, uh, committed to multilateralism. Uh, they all believe that they're, and one of the reasons, frankly, is global warming and climate change. I think the Democrats understand better than Trump that there are problems of the global commons, and there are problems that are beyond, they, they cannot be solved by the nation state. They can only be solved collectively by nation states uh, working together. And so they inherently believe in multilateral cooperation. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're going to pursue necessarily liberal trade policies, but I think you'll find them committed to multilateral institutions and wanting to do things that involve working within the institutions uh, and including reforming the institutions rather than abandoning them. And uh, now what it is they want to do will vary between um, candidates. I mean, I, I've said and on other occasions, including here, that, that uh, you know, tr Trump's problem is he's lost in the 50s for all the reasons that, that Scott said. He doesn't understand supply chains. He looks at, you know, you make it here and you ship it there, that's good, you know, and you, they make it there and ship it here, that's bad. I mean, it's a very 50s view of the world. Somebody like Senator Warren really is lost in the 30s. Uh, for her, it's, this is class warfare. You know, trade is one more way, way that the large multinational companies, you know, cheat and oppress the workers. It's classic uh, yeah. class warfare. Yeah, exactly. I'm dying to have a candidate that's in the 21st century. They're all different decades. Lighthizer's lost in the 80s, but we don't even have, he's not running for president, so we don't have to worry about that. Um, the one thing the candidate, the Democratic candidate, they agree, the Democratic candidates agree on two things. One, whatever the president's doing, he's doing it wrong. And by making that, that allows them to avoid saying exactly what it is they would do instead. But it's easy to say he's doing it wrong. And uh, the second thing they all agree on is that he's not building coalitions when he should, which also relates to the multilateral point. And that's a, uh, a, that's a, a criticism that's catching on. I think most people believe inherently that it's better to work with your friends you know, than to sue your friends, uh, which is basically what we're doing, uh, and that it, this is particularly relevant when it comes to China, where we need – well, we got a lot of friends, potentially, because there's a lot of other countries that have – exactly the same problems we do, and we're missing that entire boat. You know, when I speak to university student groups, one of the things I remind them of is fish don't know they're in water. But if you drain the aquarium, they're in some kind of trouble. All right? And that's kind of like the multilateral rules-based system. The multilateral rules-based trading system is responsible for some huge gains in prosperity worldwide and has preserved peace since it was established in 1947. It is an amazing, amazing accomplishment uh, as, an, as, a, as an institution. And its structure, and, and while it's cumbersome, uh, it is, has, has worked very well. But the fish that are currently trading today don't know they're in water. They, they don't recognize it. And uh, you know, as I also tell the, the students, uh, you don't have to be a binge watcher of Game of Thrones to know you're better off inside the wall than outside when night falls. <laughs> okay, and and so being in the multilateral system is inside the walls. But frankly, in the last 25 years, the world, United States included, have has done very little to preserve and advance the system, and it's running on fumes now. So uh, the president is not ever going to kill it, but uh, but the 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 cracks have been existing for some time now, particularly with the rise of the rise of large developing economies who never really took much of, of an initiative in advancing the rules. And now seem now the whole thing seems stuck. So it's necessary, it's a problem. We're we 
we're, we're not actually dealing with it in a forthright manner in our politics. So uh, last question comes from Rebecca Ballinger from the University of Maryland. She says, Bloomberg reported that the United States lost 10,000 jobs in August, and some are pointing to this as a quantifying measure of the fallout of trade wars, particularly with China. What is your take? And do you think that if USMCA have passed or the bilateral trade agreement with, with Japan, would either of those agreements make up for those lost jobs? I think the best answer is we'll never know because of the size and complexity of the U.S. economy. So we have ten, uh, a question about a loss of 10,000 jobs. Well, the Bureau of Labor Statistics will tell you that there were somewhere between 140 and 150 million people working in the United States. That's the employer survey. Uh, and uh, so take that as the that, – that's the denominator. And if 10,000 is the numerator and 140 or 150 million is the denominator, this is a very small portion of jobs. In addition, uh, our economy is highly dynamic. And so there are roughly uh, in that 140 or 150 million workers, people employed, uh, there are roughly 2 million jobs every month that are destroyed. There are probably 2 million plus jobs created. In fact, the, the unemployment re report, as it's called, the employment report, <clears throat> is the net of jobs created versus jobs lost. And so if you created 200,000 jobs in a month, the economy created 200,000 jobs in the month, that's because 2.2 million jobs were created and 2.0 million jobs were destroyed. So I think it is a lot of people are looking for ways to connect policy actions to specific measures. It's a hard thing to do. It's particularly hard given the scale and complexity of the U.S. economy. And I think the short the, the, the right answer is Scott's. The short answer is I don't think that the agreements she's talking about will have that significant effect on employment. I, I think the Japan agreement will probably have a positive effect on farm income, but not necessarily on farm jobs. Thank you both. And thank you for your questions. For our listeners, you can send more questions to tradeguys at csis.org. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Thank Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.